also pledge online at weru.org or call 469-6600 during weekday business hours. Thank you for all you do for WERU. Radio by and for the community. WERU FM 89.9 Blue Hill and streaming live at weru.org. Support for WERU comes from Village Soup, the Republican Journal, providing the communities of Waldo, Knox, and Hancock counties with news, information, ideas, events, goods, and services on newsstands Thursdays and on the web at waldo.villagesoup.com. It's just about 3.58 and 10 seconds. We've got a few minutes to go before the main currents program starts. Let's get a quick look at the weather coming up this afternoon. Scattered showers mainly after 4 p.m., partly sunny with a high near 63. West wind around 11 miles an hour, chance of precipitation around 30%. Tonight, partly cloudy with a low around 39. Northwest winds 9 to 11 miles an hour. Thursday, sunny with a high near 54. Southwest winds 7 to 9 miles an hour. Thursday night, a chance of showers after midnight. Increasing clouds with a low around 47. Southwest winds around 9 miles an hour. Chance of precipitation is 30%. And Friday, a chance of showers mostly cloudy with a high near 54. Southwest winds 9 to 11 miles an hour. Chance of Precipitation 50%, new precipitation amounts of less than a tenth of an inch possible. Friday night, partly cloudy, and uh, let's take a look at uh, further on, with a low around 37 degrees, northwest wind around 7 miles an hour, a chance of showers after 10 a.m., mostly cloudy with a high near 49 Saturday, uh, north winds around 6 miles an hour becoming light and variable, new precipitation amounts Let's see, chance of precipitation is 50% Saturday night. A chance of rain before 2 a.m. Then a chance of rain and snow. Snow, that's the first time I've seen that this time. Mostly cloudy with a low around 34. Chance of precipitation, 40%. Sunday, a chance of snow before 8 a.m. Partly sunny with a high near 41. Chance of precipitation, 30%. You're listening to WERU 89.9 in Blue Hill, 99.9 in Bangor and streaming live at WERU.org. Stay tuned for Main Currents. And this is Main Currents, independent news, views, and culture. I'm your host, Amy Brown. Today we're doing a sort of Where Are They Now show with some of the 13 Mainers from all across the state and different walks of life who volunteered back in 2006 to have themselves tested for the presence of 71 chemicals in their bodies. As we reported in 2007 when the results were published in the Body of Evidence report, toxic industrial chemicals were found in every person tested. The group behind the project was the Alliance for a Clean and Healthy Maine, which included the Environmental Health Strategy Center, the Learning Disabilities Association of Maine, the Maine Labor Group on Health, the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association, the Maine People's Resource Center, the Maine Public Health Association, the Natural Resources Council of Maine, and the Maine Chapter of Physicians for Social Responsibility. All the project protocols were approved by the University of Southern Maine Office of Research Compliance and Institutional Review Board. Doctors Vincent Markowski and Richard Donahue, the project's principal investigators, provided oversight of the study methodology, data collection, laboratory testing, and data analysis. 46 different chemicals were found in the bodies of the 13 Mainers. The average body burden was 36 toxic chemicals detected in the blood, urine, and hair of each participant. Back in 2007, we spoke with one of the participants, Russell Libby, then the executive director of the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association, who surprisingly had tied for the most chemicals detected. Russell was also one of the original hosts of Common Ground Radio here on WERU. And unfortunately, he died of cancer in 2012, a great loss to our community. I want to start the show with his words in the form of a quote that appears on his portrait in Robert Shetterly's Americans Who Tell the Truth portrait series. Russell said, quote, We have to challenge the idea that contamination is just the price of living in the modern world. Our bodies don't have systems to process plastics or flame retardants or pesticides. If contamination is the price of modern society, 
modern society has failed us, end quote. So I'd like to dedicate this show to the memory of Russell Libby and welcome some of the others who participated in the Body of Evidence study who will be joining us by phone throughout the program today, as well as a representative from one of the groups involved in the coalition that sponsored the report and that continues to work on this issue. With me in the studio is Emma Hallis O'Connor from the Environmental... She's the Environmental Health Campaign Manager with the Environmental Strategy... the Environmental Health Strategy Center slash Prevent Harm, And she's going to be here for the full hour to answer my questions and yours, as you call them. We're going to be opening the phone lines in about 15 minutes. Welcome, Emma. Thank you. Hello. And thanks for joining us today. And also joining us by phone first today, we have uh, one of the study participants with a very familiar name, Hannah Pingree, is with us. Welcome, Hannah. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Hannah, as most of you are probably aware, served four terms in the Maine legislature, including one as the House Majority Leader. After learning that PBDE flame retardants were found in breast milk, she sponsored a bill that successfully phased out two of them back in 2004. In 2008, she was a sponsor of Maine's Kids Safe Products Act. In 2012, she testified at a hearing before the U.S. Senate Committee on Environment and Public Works advocating for updating and strengthening the federal 1976 Toxic Substance Control Act In 2013, she was featured in the HBO documentary Toxic Hot Seat. Back in 2006, when the body of evidence study was done, Hannah had the second highest level of total phthalates and the second highest level of mercury in the main study group. Her mercury levels were above the safety standard for the protection of a developing fetus from subtle but permanent brain damage. So we're going to talk with Hannah first. She can only be with us for about 15, 20 minutes or so. So we're going to direct the first couple of questions to her and then have Emma join in, and we'll have some other participants calling in as well. And if you listeners have any questions for any of these folks, give us a call. The number is 469-0500. Again, 469-0500. Uh, Hannah, were you surprised by your test results? Um <clears throat> Yes, well, first of all, Amy, thank you so much for doing the show. It's a, uh, listening to Russell Libby's words, it really, mm. it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good quote about how so many of us feel about this issue. Um, when I first um, agreed to participate in the study, I'd worked on this issue, and, and we'd worked on a couple flame retardant bans. Um, I agreed to do it, and I hadn't thought a lot about it, and they came and asked me for my hair, blood, and urine, and I did it. And, you know, it took a while. They sent these things off to a bunch of different labs. And I remember getting my test results back in the middle of the winter um, and talking to Dr. Donahue. And, you know, I went from being a uh, activist, sort of outraged at the chemical companies, um, to, you know, really mad about personally what it meant to my life. Um, I think I was just getting married that next summer, and I, had, I didn't have kids for quite a few more years. But, um, you know, having high levels of phthalates, I had BPA. I mean, we all had every chemical you hear about now, you know, um, flame retardants, PFCs, um, they were in all of us, and especially the ones many of us had chemicals above what is considered a safe level. So um, I was fired up, you know, immediately I kind of remember firing off an email to some of my friends saying, you know, you really got to be more aware of this. Um, I certainly changed, I was, you know, I felt like I was a relatively healthy living person, just like Russell Libby did, Um, but I did change some of my eating habits um, and, you know, personal product care, care products that I used. Um, And, but more, you know, it, it made me realize that this is not an issue that we can just make different buying choices all the time. Um, You know, if the head of the main organic farmers and growers still has a lot of these things in his body and I do, um, you know, it's a more societal problem when these things are in the air and they're in wildlife and they're in the soil. Um, It's, it's, we're fighting a major battle. So, um, yes, I was, I was, you know, personally moved by that, and it, and it really kind of, for me, that helped launch, you know, many years of working on this issue in the Maine legislature. And when I got term limited, I have continued to work for a national coalition that's been working on this issue in Washington with actually a, a little bit of success. It looks like there might be some um, change happening in Washington. It's not perfect, but um, we're making baby step uh, progress, but there is still 
um, you know, so many things about this issue, which, you know, the more you know, the more outraged you are that, that you know, this is allowed to go on. Well, while you ha- we have you on the line and you do have that unique perspective of having been inside the legislature and also being involved with testifying at a federal level, uh, I direct this to both you and to Emma to jump in as well. What can be done on a state level uh, in general and then in particular under this administration with LePage and, you know, he's infamous for his quote about uh, BPA that maybe it'll cause women to grow little beards. That was one of his first uh, infamous quotes of many. Quotes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so what can be done on a state level in, in general if everything's working correctly and then in particular with this particular governor? And then what should be left and can be left to the federal government? Um. Well, so, I mean, Emma has been working very diligently in the uphill battle um, over the last couple years, so I'll let her speak to um, some specifics of what's happening now in Maine, Um, and and she's also a good expert on the federal stuff. But we are, um, you know, remarkably, even considering this current Congress, um, likely to take some steps which we hope will be progress um, at the federal level. We've been trying to update the very broken Toxic Substance Control Act, which was passed in 1976, uh, the year I was born, and is probably, um, it's the oldest major environmental law that hasn't been updated and probably the most failed and broken. Um, They tried to regulate um, asbestos, you know, more than 20 years ago and failed at that. And really ever since then, the EPA has been seriously hobbled in its ability to protect consumers, um, you know, workers, consumers, children, anything. And there have been little steps through some bills around toy reform and importation, but fixing this law and giving the EPA some ability to really regulate chemicals um, seems like it may happen in this Congress. Um, We're still fighting some big battles, especially in the U.S. Senate, around, um, you know, how much power industry will be given to um, push back and, and how long um, there'll probably be some preemption of what states can do in the future. And we're trying to make sure that states will only be preempted from taking action themselves if a real regulation is in place, actually regulating chemical, not just if the EPA starts thinking about it. Um, so there's still some big things on the table, and this is certainly not going to be a, a perfect piece of regulation, but we we hope in the end it's a step forward, and it seems like there's some promising signs that's possible. If you're, if you have time, um, you know, certainly calling our U.S. senators and telling them it's important that this happen, but it's also important states, you know, still have the ability to regulate um, because you know we 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 know that the EPA can be easily bogged down by 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 industry. So um, at the state level, we passed the Kids Safe. Kids Safe Products Act in 2008, and it was, uh, you know, it was a major step forward. And the idea was instead of banning each chemical, chemical by chemical, we give the Maine Department of Environmental Protection broader authority to first monitor what chemicals um, are of high concern, figure out then um, we could require manufacturers to disclose if they were using those chemicals in consumer products. Because when I buy a car seat, it doesn't say this contains this flame retardant or, you know, whatever other chemicals. Um, So we would get some at least state disclosure of of what chemicals are used in products when we're concerned about that chemical. And then the state would then have the ability to move forward with uh, bans on chemicals. So um, I will say that it passed and we we took some steps in the right direction. It was a a major law to implement. Um, I can't say we've made um, an incredible amount of progress under the current administration and, and a lot of it um, one of LePage's first, that big memo of all the things he wanted to undo included this act. So we, we pushed pr- back pretty hard right when he was elected. And um, I think uh, Emma and others have done a great job in, legis- in the legislature making sure that this reform has not been rolled back, but it still requires a somewhat progressive administration to continue to, to do something. Um, there is some ability to petition the state and the Board of Environmental Protection, and, and I would love to hear um, Emma talk a little bit because we're, we're working on some specific things about around phthalates, um, and we haven't won yet, but we're trying. So, Sure. Um, that was a great summary, Hannah. This, this is Emma Hallis O'Connor. 
Uh, yeah, thank you. Um, that was a great summary of where we're at with this exciting um, kind of monumental moment in our campaign for national chemical safety reform and also what we can do at the state level. Um, Maine's only one of a few states in the country that even has this toolbox um, at the state legislative level to take action on the worst of the worst chemicals in our products. Um, So that's important that we have that authority, but of course it's important to be using those tools, not just having those tools, and that's the challenge with you know, that has been the challenge with having the LePage administration that hasn't been supportive of um, the law and therefore the implementation of the law has been very slow. Um, But there have been ways that citizens have been able to kind of take matters into their own hands um, uh, a few years ago, um, realizing that even though we had defended the Kids Safe Products Act, it wasn't going to be used very often. We got together um, with a a big group of people from all over the state and we gathered enough signatures to require that the Department of Environmental Protection um, consider our petition uh, to phase out the use of BPA in um, uh, food packaging, specifically baby food, um, uh, toddler food was originally in our proposal, um, and infant formula packaging. And this came, you know, after we had already had one wave of action on BPA that Hannah was a big part of. Um, That was the first um, use of the Kids Safe Products Act just at the end of the Baldacci administration where we had um, gotten a rule through the Department of Environmental Protection to phase out BPA in plastic water bottles, baby bottles, sippy cups. A lot of folks probably remember our giant inflatable baby bottle that we were bringing around the state (laughs) doing press conferences with. So we had had one success using the law and had achieved one um, important policy change with BPA, and now we were ready to take the next step on food packaging. So we gathered all these signatures. We organized a very um, broad-based grassroots campaign, brought together um, scientists who were experts on BPA and um, people who understood the business side of things understood that there are safe and affordable alternatives that you can be using instead of BPA and packaging. And we had a big public hearing and um, kind of to our to our surprise, our hard work paid off. And um, it was the Board of Environmental Protection, which is um, appointed by the governor, but it's a volunteer group of kind of environmental uh, scientists and um, people in different kind of related fields. Um, they approved... Um, the adoption of this ban on BPA in um, in most of the products that we had proposed in, in infant form- formula packaging and, and baby food. Um, and that was a really great moment because we realized that even if um, the administration wasn't necessarily on board with um, moving forward on taking action on some of these chemicals, there was still a tool in our law that citizens could use on their own. So um, that that ban was then adopted by the legislature almost unanimously in 2012. And then um, we we moved on to this other class of chemicals called phthalates that Hannah just mentioned. Phthalates have a really funky spelling, uh, P-H-T-H-A-L-A-T-E-S. And they're kind of the um, bad brother of BPA in a way. BPA is a hormone-disrupting chemical used to harden plastic, so like your hard plastic water bottle. And phthalates are um, also hormone-disrupting chemicals that are used to soften plastic. So if you think about your raincoat or your shower curtain, things that are flexible. Um, And there's a lot of growing scientific evidence that these chemicals are really wreaking havoc on um, babies, kids, um, pregnant women when they're exposed to phthalates. Their offspring um, are developing learning disabilities, asthma, um, reproductive disorders. So we decided to move next to this group of chemicals, and we once again used this citizen petition process um, under the law to move that forward. And I don't know if you want to move on to other questions or if you want me to tell you how that sh- that shakes out. But Well, let's, let's definitely bookmark that and yeah. don't forget to get back to that. I think uh, Hannah is probably needing to wrap up pretty soon and we have another call coming in. So I wanted to give you a chance before we let you go, Hannah, to uh, this is Hannah Pingree, if you're just joining us, to give us any last thoughts or insights about this before we uh, let you go. Um, you know, I think 
I, Emma's an expert, and she's working so hard in the legislature against, uh, you know, in a obviously incredible uphill battle. Um, you know, I I think that this is a very you know mainstream issue, and I think um, you know I've worked on this issue nationally and in Maine, and I think you know parents, grandparents, citizens. I mean, a lot of us have the right to be concerned about this. It, this. Um, what we're talking about today, most of these laws aren't about pesticides in foods because that's regulated um, uh, in a different way. But, you know, pest, it's the same type of thing. You know, these major corporations who, by the way, they are um, often also the oil companies because many uh, of the chemicals we're talking about are often byproducts of petroleum, including phthalates. So ExxonMobil is um, one of the largest chemical companies um, in the United States. So you know, all the other associated problems that some of these big folks are, are creating are, um, it's the same folks who are putting these chemicals into our bodies. So I just hope, um, I th- I'm sure your your audience is very aware, I think it's a really relevant and mainstream issue. And I think these chemicals um, have been shown in, you know, study after study. I You really can't even keep track of the science of the number of cancers, learning disabilities, diabetes, obesity, um, you know, that are turning up. So, you know, we live in a country with a lot of health problems, and I, I, I would not say that they're all related to chemicals, but it's one contributing factor um, to what I view as, you know, a pretty significant um, problem. And I think, you know, like a bunch of issues today from climate change to guns, I mean, it seems insurmountable. Um, but, I, you know, I think we all just need to, um, you know, ask our elected officials and, I lobby my congresswoman all the time on this issue, and luckily she's on our side. Um, but, you know, we have a race coming up in the 2nd in the Congressional District, and we have state legislative races. Um, I just think these are issues you, you need to ask people about, and you need to ask them to vote the right way. Um, and I, at least I think we have shown that, um, you know, it's not a partisan issue. I mean, very often this is this is an issue that everybody wants to be on the right side of. You don't want to be viewed as, you know, polluting babies or impacting people's health. But, um, you know, we're still battling an army of lobbyists every time we try to win, um, especially on the federal level. So um, I hope people will just um, stay engaged in this. Um, Certainly the Environmental Health Strategy Center and their um, partner organization, Prevent Harm, which works on elections, Please go to their websites. They're easily Googleable. And also um, the coalition Safer Chemicals Healthy Families um, is the national coalition of which um, a bunch of main groups are a part of, which is working on the federal reform. So go to either one of those websites, and they'll give you tools to interact with your representatives. But, um, you know, I think it's an important issue, and I, I really um, appreciate you coming back to it because it's certainly still relevant. Well, thank, thanks for taking time with talking to, to talk with us today. Uh, that was uh, former State Representative Hannah Pingree, and she was one of the participants in the study that we're revisiting today and looking at what's transpired since that time that we originally reported on this back in uh, 2007. Uh, the study was called the Body of Evidence Report, and if you're just joining us, uh, there were 13 Mainers from all across the state, different walks of life, who were tested for a variety of chemicals. That uh, They were tested for 71 chemicals in their bodies, and there were toxic industrial chemicals found in everyone that was tested. The project manager for the report is joining us now by phone. Steve Taylor, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you, Amy. And we uh, were discussing this before uh, we went on air. We also have here with us in studio Emma Hallis O'Connor, who is also with the organization, one of the member organizations of the coalition that put this uh, study together. And uh, we're wondering about what it was like in your role as the project director to be breaking the news to these people about the results of this study. Yeah, thanks, Amy. That's a great question. Um, you know, we were fortunate in that, um, you know, both fortunate and intentional that in designing the project, we um, had access to, a, you know, a, a lot of uh, advice from partners around the country. We also ran the project through uh, what's called the Institutional Review Board at the University of Southern Maine, uh, you know, which, uh, you know, governs uh, human research. And we worked with 
a uh, you know a couple of principal investigator physicians who were you know very helpful in presenting the results to the participants. So. Um, you know, we, we tried to do it in the right way where we had medical expertise and advice available to people uh, and had a lot of scientific available, information available to them about their personal results, about the chemicals, about exposures. And the reason we set up everything that way uh, is because the findings in these kind of studies are often surprising and sometimes shocking to people. You know, as you probably know, and as your listeners may know, we hear constantly from the chemical industry and the trade associations that represent a lot of consumer product manufacturers that these chemicals, you know, stay bound inside the products, they don't escape, and if they do, they're completely safe. Um, and so often it is surprising for people to find out that they have dozens of potentially harmful synthetic chemicals in their bodies. And even people who, you know, intellectually know that that may be the case, uh, when they actually have to look at the results on paper, it can be a very, uh, you know, personal, deep experience for all of us. And, you know, that's part of the reason that we did the project back in 2007 was to help everybody, not just the participants in the study, understand the seriousness of this issue. And you went to great lengths to find people who represented different geographic parts of the state, but also uh, you chose Russell Libby, who's an organic farmer. One of the other participants was someone who basically spent almost their entire life living at a fish camp. I mean, you're not talking about people who are working in industry that you would think would be exposed to these chemicals all the time. Uh, were you surprised by the results? Um. You know, I wasn't surprised that, you know, as a whole, the participants had all of these chemicals in their bodies because, you know, that's what we um, expected to find. Although, of course, you know, we designed the study uh, in a way to be, um, you know, kind of nonpartisan, you might say, right, in, in unbiased investigation. Um, but I think some of the things that were surprising about the results are, you know, what's surprising to everybody. Uh, Hannah Pingree, who we just heard from, literally grew up on an island, right? Um, you know, Eric Sterling uh, grew up on a set of remote fishing camps uh, east of Greenville with no electricity and no indoor plumbing. Uh, as you said, you know, Russ Libby, who we lost recently, right, longtime organic farmer. Uh, Betty Cattell, lifelong nurse who worked in the medical system, right? Um, and, you know, these and, and other participants had, uh, you know, very high levels of many of these synthetic chemicals in their bodies. And so, you know, what it helped to show to a lot of people is that, you know, eating an organic diet, you know, yes, absolutely helpful and important. Um, you know, avoiding certain exposures when you can, absolutely helpful and important. But the real problem was and still is you know, the completely unregulated use of untested and toxic chemicals in everyday products. And so it's, it's you know, we part of what we found is that there have to be systemic solutions, and that's part of what led the Maine legislature to act and hopefully will, you know, continue to encourage Congress and federal agencies and companies themselves to act. I'm going to give the phone number in case any listeners have questions. The number is 469-0500. If you have any questions, uh, my guest in the studio today from the Environmental Health Strategy Center is Emma Hallis O'Connor. And we have a series of people joining us by phone who were involved in this original study back in 2006-2007, the Body of Evidence Report. Uh, many of them uh, who are going to be calling in uh, are people who were participants like you just heard from uh, former state representative Pinkery, but also we have uh, Steve Taylor with us now for the next few minutes at least who was one of the people uh, the primary project director of this uh, overall uh, project which was quite intensive what was involved in, in, in setting up testing like this is this something that uh, you know I'm wondering if callers and listeners would want to do something like this if they could? Is it something that would be accessible to an everyday person who wanted to find out what levels of toxins they had in their in their blood? And is it 
something that would just be so outrageously expensive that it would be prohibitive. Yeah, well, it it does tend to be difficult to do on one's own. Um, you know, the testing requires you know collection depending on what chemicals you're looking for of a blood sample or a urine sample or hair or fingernails and as you say you know it it can be expensive especially to test for a broad suite of chemicals um you know certain things like lead because it's such a a long-standing well-known problem are you know there's more accessibility to testing and it's easier and more affordable but you know you're correct that for most people um you know it's not practical or accessible or affordable did did uh, i want to ask you steve if you had your uh i guess it was blood and urine tested at the time and i know you weren't around um, at the time of this but you more recently were involved in a study of phthalates along similar lines if you had yours tested for the phthalates were either of you curious about your own levels i was curious but i i didn't include myself in the in the 25 just just to be able to have all of these different voices and we had plenty of people who wanted to to volunteer Mm -hmm. to do it um, but I certainly was, you know, thinking of myself as a, um, you know, younger woman who would want to have kids someday. I am curious, um, you know, and, you know, frankly, I guess, to be honest, I, I kind of already know the answer too, which is that like everybody else, I live in a world that has lots of industrial chemicals everywhere. I'm certain I'm exposed to them, even if I'm careful as a shopper to try to avoid some of them. Mm-hmm. And Steve? Yeah, no, I, I wasn't. You know, we had, uh, whatever, 13 slots back in 2007. And, um, you know, I'm certainly interested, of course, like everybody else. But, um, you know, as the project manager, I, I you know didn't want to take up a slot for myself and probably wouldn't have been um, the most appropriate thing. But, I, I you know, I think the, um, you know, it, it's great that uh, the Environmental Health Strategy Center and the Alliance for Clean and Healthy Maine and other organizations and institutions around the country have been able to do these studies and continue to do them. But the reality is we know that, uh, you know, people across the country have these chemicals in their bodies. And so in a certain sense, it's unfortunate that they have to keep being done in order to prompt action by companies and governments, because we, we know what the problem is. They're is really, you know, there's not any more need to document the fact that these chemicals escape from consumer products, they're absorbed into people's bodies, and they're linked to harmful health effects. Uh, You know, what's needed is action to change that, right? So, you know, it's great that the research continues to be done. You know, we continue to learn ever more about what chemicals are in which people. But the point isn't to slowly watch the problem continue it's to fix it Hmm. i think that's a good point and i i will say that this project was you know it was a project to raise awareness but it was also a strategy to to help bring our state closer to um real action on some of these chemicals and when we you know I wasn't there at the time Steve was there, but when we were coming up with sort of a multi-year campaign to address some of these chemicals that are in our products, getting into the food chain, getting into our bodies, um, you know, we couldn't just pass a law right at the beginning. We had to get people to um, understand that these chemicals are out there and in our bodies. And a great way to do that was to have this study where you have real people, relatable people, faces you recognize, and um, see that this is a problem that's affecting everybody. Mm. Which is why I think it's important that you point out that uh, the research was overseen by the university, uh, people who oversee research done at the university, because obviously if you go into something that you're uh, trying to make a point, then making sure that your standards are really high is important. And it looks like you uh, crossed all your T's and dotted all your I's and trying to make sure that you had this as legitimate as as absolutely possible. Steve's a very careful person. (laughs) So what what can people do? We have talked about and we'll talk more about what's happening federally on a state level for legislation. But in day-to-day lives, um, you know, there are BPA-free stickers on everything now, but that doesn't mean that they're safe. I mean, it's a marketing strategy now that everyone's heard of BPA, bisphenol A, but what, what products should people avoid? 
And if you are concerned about what you've already have in your body from these different industrial toxins, is there anything you can do to get rid of them? Well, I would certainly say there are some things um, that every person can do as a consumer to at least, you know, reduce exposure to some of the chemicals that we know are in certain products. Um, You know, you could um, start to use plastics less often knowing that there are chemicals like BPA or or bad alternatives to BPA in plastic products, just reducing the overall number of of plastics moving from plastic Tupperware to glass Tupperware, for example. That can be one more, you know, simple step. Um, uh, There are some um, pretty good resources out there that sort of do some research for you that are user-friendly. For example, there's this um, website that's put together by EWG called skindeep.org. And it's an environmental working group. Environmental working group. And, and that's a tool to look at personal care products, so things that you're generally you know putting on your hair and skin, um, makeup, shampoo, and, and they kind of compile a database of at least what information exists about the chemicals that are in personal care products. Um, recently, there's been, I think I've seen several apps um, coming into play that are sort of, you know, scan the barcode. Um, I think the good guide makes one. I'm, I'm blanking on the name of another I saw recently. Um, but, the, you know, the idea is that there's a little bit more information concentrated in one place. Um, that being said, though, I think it is important to remember that, like Hannah Pingree was saying, this is not a problem that we can shop our way out of, and we certainly would not place the responsibility um, to, you know, totally rid your body of toxic chemicals on any individual consumer. This is really something that we have to come together to solve, and it requires um, companies to um, take leadership to get toxic products out of their um, stores and out of out of their products that they manufacture, um, requires legislators to show leadership and enacting policy that um, drives these chemicals out of our products. And so I would never I would never say that the solution, you know, is really to to solely shop differently. Plus, of course, there's the cost uh, consideration and um, many of the products that are um, you know, less toxic if you're going on skin deep. Some, often they tend to be more expensive. So there's there's a economic justice issue here as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me just remind listeners, you're listening to Maine Currents, and we are talking about a study that was done in 2006, released a report in 2007 called the Body of Evidence Report that looked at uh, measuring the level of environmental or of uh, chemical toxins in Mainers' bodies, looking at a cross-section of Mainers from around the state, and we're speaking with a few of the people who are involved in the project or participants in the project and taking a look at what's happening in the state and federally since that time. And uh, with me in the studio from the Environmental Health Strategy Center, we have Emma Hallis O'Connor and by phone, the project director, uh, Steve Taylor. Steve, did you want to weigh in on that question of what people can do? And also, Oh, and let me give the phone number if any of the listeners have any questions. The number is 469-0500. We are expecting to have call-ins from a few of the other participants in the study before the hour is up, but we also are welcoming your questions or comments as well. Love to hear if any listeners would want to know if you could find out what the chemical levels are in your own body, 469-0500. But Steve, do you want to weigh in on that question of what individuals can do and whether or not you know, once you have these levels of these different chemicals, and maybe it varies from chemical to chemical, is there anything that you can do to get them out of your body? uh, Or can you just sort of cap off your levels and hope to not increase them? Well, you know, it's a complex of questions, right? And um, I think, you know, there's there's, um, some evidence that There are certain activities and protocols, you know, eating organic foods, um, exercise, uh, you know, ingesting cold-pressed oils, that there's actually some data, you know, that they will help to, uh, you know, usher some toxins out of the body. But there are others that, you know, build up in organs or bones and persist much longer. So, you know, it's very difficult to say that, 
uh, even imply, right, that a solution for individuals is just to get the toxins out of their body, because as you say, they're likely to be constantly replenished, because we live in a system where, you know, any company is allowed to use virtually any chemical in uh, household products that go into homes, schools, nurseries. Um, you know, in terms of individual solutions, you know, there are, as Emma says, some targeted things people can do. Uh, there are special windows of vulnerability, uh, particularly in the womb, in babies, in very young children, and then again in the teen years. So, you know, there are certain things like uh, you know, getting a non-toxic mattress, using non-toxic baby bottles, uh, those sorts of things that can potentially uh, create important reductions in exposure in some vulnerable windows. But as Emma said, you know, there were too many chemicals in too many products in too many homes and schools and workplaces and daycares. And, you know, we have to get to systemic solutions. So I would just encourage your listeners and everybody they interact with, uh, who they'll hopefully tell about the need for action, that, you know, their individual actions in their home, in their own shopping, in their own habits, you know, by all means pursue those, but also connect to campaigns like those run by the Environment Health Strategy Center, the Alliance for a Clean and Healthy Maine, um, the national collaboration that I work for now, other organizations and campaigns support those campaigns. Talk to store managers, talk to companies, talk to elected officials, uh, because as you know, companies and legislators and agencies hear from people in numbers, that, uh, that feedback causes action. All right. Well, thank you for joining us today, Steve. We appreciate your being with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And uh, we have uh, one of the other study participants joining us now by phone. That's okay. We'll uh, we'll get her back in just a second. Uh, Regina Creeley is joining us by phone. And at the time of the study, she was one of the participants back in 2006. At the time, she was 54 years old, uh, living in Hudson, married with two grown children. She began working as a classroom assistant when she was 14 and uh, was working at the time of the study as a special ed instructor and said that she had noticed a dramatic increase in the number of students in her school with special needs. Regina had the highest total arsenic level of all of the study participants, which was probably due to her recent meal of shellfish, which include which contain a non-toxic form of arsenic. She had the lowest mercury level. Congratulations on that, and welcome to the program, Regina. Hello. Hi. So uh, what, were you, what were your thoughts, what was your reaction when you got your test results? Were you surprised? Um, not, I, I had been studying about the issue, and um, I wasn't that surprised. And I had taken care to not eat much tuna fish with mercury and not, and my... Um, I wore very little makeup and things like that, um, but it is still very disconcerting to see all those chemicals in, um, you know, that they're mine, they're in my body. So I, yeah. I was prepared, but it was still surprising. It hits home. How did how did how did it affect your life? Did you make changes afterwards? Did um, you know how? On a day-to-day basis, just carrying that knowledge with you, what's that like? Well, um, it, what what I was so passionate about were my special education students. I was already trying to eat organic, growing my own food, which just shows once again, if you try very hard, society is still putting these chemicals into us. Um, but it, what it did more um, for me was made me even more passionate about wondering why there were so many uh, more and more and more special education students into my school district. I worked in the same school for 30 straight years, and um, there was pretty much the same steady amount of special education students 
until the late 90s. And then there was an increase in the number of students and an increase in the severity of the students we had, even though the whole population of students was going down. Uh, the um, Maine was aging, as we know, we're one of the states that has the highest age group, and so school-aged children in general are going down, the populations in the schools. But the um, special education population in my classroom um, and in my whole district was increasing, and this was um, extremely concerning to me. But you know, uh, We can say that these chemicals cause learning disabilities, but I loved the children in my classroom, and I loved them, and their learning disabilities made it so hard for them to learn. Hmm. Um, and so looking at the chemicals in my body, I just wondered so much, you know, what chemicals were in their body. And you see, you know, a regular education student that doesn't have learning disabilities learns their multiplication tables in so much time. But the children with the learning disabilities, it takes so long to learn the multiplication tables, and it just seems so unfair. And um, so that's, it just increased wondering why um, the special education population was increasing, why the disabilities were more severe. And I really noticed the increase in asthma, diabetes, and allergies. Uh, we had a number of children with childhood cancer, whereas my first 15 years of teaching in that school, we didn't have anybody, the, the children with cancer or they were so few and far between, but um, I was uh, the children with diabetes who needed insulin shots. We didn't have those for my first twenty years of teaching, and then we started having them on a regular basis. And I just said, you know, our children should be getting more healthy, um, and the parents were good parents. They were so concerned with their children. They were, um, the, the children were, uh, in my experience, in my classroom, my school district, the children were less healthy in 2007 than they were in 1984 when I began. And I, you know, this to me is so important, and I'm surprised that it isn't in the newspapers more, that there's, um, the autism rate is in the newspapers, um, and I think it should be even more. That's a huge increase. And I, I'm surprised that there isn't more. And then this, there are studies, and Emma knows the studies, and Steve Taylor knows the studies. But I don't think, you know, my parents that I worked with on a day-to-day -day basis, they didn't know about chemical studies and so forth. Um, so that's the study just reinforced my passion for I wish we could have healthier children in the state of Maine and that the student population should be getting healthier, um, oh. not sicker. Thank, thank you so much for calling in and sharing that with us, Regina. I appreciate that. Thanks for sharing that. And uh, Emma, you want to comment on that? And also sure. uh, it raises for me the question of whether or not younger kids are getting exposed to more of these. Are there more of these toxic chemicals in the environment than there used to be? Sure. Well, Regina is absolutely right that um, statistically, if you look nationwide and in Maine, rates of um, childhood cancer are going up dramatically. Um, rates of learning disabilities in children, autism in children um, are going up dramatically as well as behavioral problems, um, ADHD and attention disorders of other sorts and um, aggression have been increasing and all increasing over the same span of time that the um, numbers of chemicals which were never tested for safety in the first place um, have become circulated in the marketplace. So um, I think it's true to say that after World War II, I would say, in the, the mid-century, mid-20th century, we started to see all of these industrial chemicals, many of them that were actually first introduced as warfare chemicals, um, become 
put to use in everyday household products. And um, it's only, you know, just uh, 10, 20, 30 years later that we start to see these um, new trends of, of disability and chronic disease. Um, and so, I, you know, I think it's, it's true that we're all kind of living in what's been called a human experiment that hasn't been going on that long, but that's certainly showing some disturbing trends. Well, looping back around to, uh, I think, where we left off at one point earlier, talking about some of the federal legislation that's uh, hopefully, uh, I guess, you're working on having it tightened and strengthened. The 1976 federal legislation grandparented in all of the existing chemicals, just sort of under a rubric of, you know, we're not going to test any of this, this is all safe. And only new things needed to be tested. So anything that was already existing uh, was not being tested. The things that were new were supposed to be, but uh, your take on that is that it's taking way too long and not being done correctly. And so what would right. the uh, the newer legislation, the revision, do to strengthen that? Sure. So as you said, um, the existing chemical safety law, Toxic Substances Control Act, or, or TOSCA, it's called, um, it, at the time it was passed, grandfathered in um, all about 62,000 chemicals that were on the market at the time. And now today we have something like a little over 85,000 chemicals used in commerce. And um, in all this time that uh, TOSCA has been in existence over 35 years, we've only seen 200 chemicals evaluated for safety. So that's 200 out of 85 thousand chemicals in commerce. So one really important feature of this new um, reform um, is to expedite this process and to give the um, Environmental Protection Agency actual tools and actual authority to not only evaluate the safety of chemicals at a faster pace, but also restrict the uses of chemicals um, when they're found to have properties that are not safe. And Hannah Pingree earlier in the show mentioned that um, under our current law, the chemical asbestos didn't even pass the um, the test for unsafe, um, and and so the EPA was unable um, to ultimately um, restrict the use of asbestos, except for in a very narrow number of products. And so the big goal here, and what we hope will happen, is a more robust authority to act. Um, also to be able to um, single out some of the worst of the worst chemicals that are in our products. Um, we call these um, persistent bioaccumulative and toxic chemicals. That means they stick around in the environment for a long time and they build up in the food chain and they have really toxic properties. We want an ability for the EPA to be able to kind of fast track those ones, prioritize them. Um, and uh, there's also an important piece of just um, using better science. Um, for the past 35 years, our chemical safety law has sort of viewed chemicals that are safe for healthy white males are safe for everybody. We know now that that's definitely not true. We know that there are vulnerable populations um, who are much more susceptible to the harmful effects of chemicals than others. For example, pregnant women, young children, um, communities who already live in a place that is more um, where they're more likely to be exposed to industrial chemicals, for example, fence line communities who have been living next to some kind of industrial waste um, already have harmful chemicals in their bodies. These are examples of, of things that our current law just doesn't even consider when they consider exposure to um, man-made chemicals. Hmm. And uh, let me give the phone number one more time because we have time to take maybe one or two calls if uh, people call now. We're going to wrap up in about, oh, well, just under 10 minutes. So the number is 469-0500 if you have a question you'd like to uh, join us. Uh, you mentioned that there are some chemicals that are among the worst of the worst that you'd like to have fast-tracked. Can you say what some of those are and what they are in so that if people want to avoid them, they can try to do that until that gets passed? Sure. I can talk about a few of them. Um, we were talking about phthalates earlier. Um, that's certainly a class of chemicals that has a lot of condemning evidence um, surrounding them. Um, these are hormone disruptors. And um, when people are exposed to phthalates, especially when they're in these vulnerable stages of their lives, pregnant women, um, infants, young children, um, uh, people going through puberty, 
um, that's when these hormones really disrupt our development and lead to all kinds of health problems, including um, some of the learning disabilities that Regina was talking about, um, including um, reproductive harm, so infertility. Um, and so this is a class of chemicals that actually um, the the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission, um, which is a federal agency that's been reviewing certain chemicals and consumer products, they actually recommend a ban on phthalates. But again, our current laws are pretty weak and pretty slow moving, even when the top um, officials in the United States say that these chemicals are dangerous. Um, we're not taking action fast enough. And uh, John, our engineer, just uh, pointed out that asbestos is a mineral, not a chemical. And we also, some of the things that were tested for were also heavy metals. So we should be calling those toxins, not chemicals. But uh, so thanks for that correction, John. Um, phthalates are the plastic softeners. You mentioned yes. that. Okay. And BPA yep. is the hardeners. Uh, right. You did a, another study we've been talking about just following up on this 2006-2007 uh, body of evidence report, but the phthalate study, do you want to say a little bit about that? That one's a lot more recent. Sure. Yeah. We just did this a um, couple years ago. We tested 25 main people um, for the presence of phthalates in their bodies. And we phthalates is a class of chemicals. So we tested um, their bodies for several different types of phthalates. And um, so these were volunteers from all over the state, different walks of life, tried to get uh, geographic diversity as well as we did in the previous study. And um, this was a urine test. Urine only was required to test for phthalates. And um, we did find that all 25 out of 25 people um, did find phthalates in their bodies. And some of the participants found levels of certain phthalates that were, you know, really significantly higher than what is found in the average American's body. So we certainly learned a valuable and kind of similar lesson with this study as we did with the last one that, you know, these chemicals are really ubiquitous and really hard to avoid. And some of the participants in the study were people who were, um, you know, considered themselves to be really careful shoppers, um, intentionally avoiding certain products that they knew had phthalates. And yet some of those people had the highest results. Yeah, those BPA-free stickers that are showing up on everything make you think that you're buying something safe if you don't uh, look at it too hard. But those are not necessarily a sign that what you're purchasing is any safer than it was back when it had BPA in it. Right. It goes back to our need for a national um, chemical safety law that really works because if new chemicals that enter the marketplace aren't being given a real good faith safety test before they go into our products, then we're going to have this situation where we, you know, campaign and successfully get a bad chemical out of our products like BPA only to have it replaced with something maybe bad or worse. So, um, that's that's a role for our national government to play to be able to say um, that there's a set of safety standards that chemicals have to meet before they end up in our products and, of course, in our bodies. Well, I'm getting the signal that we're just about out of time, so I want to give you a chance to have the last word here. Anything that you would like to uh, say to wrap up and also your website? I know that both of these studies are still available on the website if people want to go look at them. Yeah, thank you. Well, thanks for um, having me on and, and all the other um, participants who were able to call in. I think it's um, great to just have an opportunity to talk about this issue that affects all of our lives in so many different ways. Um, I know that everybody knows someone who you know, has cancer or someone who has suffered from a learning disability or um, any number of the, the chronic health issues we've talked about today. And a lot of people wonder about the chemicals in our environment and in our products and what we can do about it. And so I'm glad to be you know, part of an organization and part of a group of organizations that are working on a solution. Um, and I would definitely invite anybody to check us out and get involved because we are always working on the next step to drive these harmful chemicals out of the marketplace by changing policies. Um, so we would love to have people involved. And our website, um, we actually had a website name change recently for the Environmental Health Strategy Center. It's um, www.ourhealthyfuture.org. 
And um, you can also go to www.preventharm.org, which is our sister organization. So please get involved. All right. Thank you very much for being with us today. That's uh, Emma Hellis O'Connor. And we've been following up on the 2007 Body of Evidence Report, which you can find at their website. And I'd like to thank Emma as well as Steve Taylor and former House uh, Representative Maine Representative Hannah Pingree and Regina Creeley who called in today and John Greenman who engineered today's program. I hope I haven't missed anyone and thank you everyone for listening. Join us here every Wednesday at 4 o'clock for Maine Currents. I'm your host Amy Brown thanking you for listening and encouraging you to stay tuned for Democracy Now! coming up next and then Jazz Straight Ahead. Larry Staubark is in the house raising a fist and finding some jazz for your uh, listening pleasure tonight here on your community radio station, WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Support for WERU comes from Maine Farmland Trust, a member-supported, nonprofit organization focused on reviving the working landscape and securing a future for farming in Maine. More information on protecting farmland and supporting farmers at mainefarmlandtrust.org. This is WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill. It's online at WERU.org. Support for WERU comes from Easterly Wine of Belfast, Maine, an independent enterprise that supports free speech, democracy, and independent media. Support for WERU also comes from joeyfixescomputers.com, visiting businesses and performing on-site services for more than computers since 1998, 852-4999 or joeyfixescomputers.com. You are listening to Community Radio, WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill and 99.9 in Bangor. Here's a quick look at the National Weather Service forecast for the greater Bangor, mid-coast, and downeast regions. Tonight, partly cloudy to start, then clearing with lows around